All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. I'm Josh Clark, and you're listening to Powerful with Jeff Couliard. Welcome to today's show. I am thrilled to have as guests two women who have been working tirelessly to help street-engaged youth in Calgary get off the street, get out of the street culture, and back into the mainstream. And they do this through the work of an organization called The Doorway, which has been helping the street-entrenched youth of Calgary get off the street for more than 30 years, and they've got a really innovative model and perspective on how they can incentivize the type of behavior that they want uh, from these youth. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Marilyn and Caitlin as much as I did. And I do really encourage you to check out the work that they do and support them in whatever way you can at www.thedoorway.ca. And as always, we very much appreciate you subscribing to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as dropping us a rating or a review. Uh, It really does help us reach a wider audience and have a bigger impact in the world. Marilyn, what? tell us about The Doorway. Tell us about the history, um, how it came to be, and maybe a little bit about what sets it apart from other other organizations. Absolutely. It's a really exciting story because it started in the mid-80s in Calgary when our provincial government didn't believe there were young people on the street. Um, And the first director of The Doorway uh, at that time was the director of the food bank. And he was producing a lot of media content about what was going on at the food bank. It was a fairly new thing in Calgary. And... He told stories about young people that shopped at the food bank and didn't have any place to take the food that was given to them, and so they would leave it on the set for somebody else at the food bank. Um, A philanthropist who was paying attention to things like the food bank in our city and social context anyway um, became interested in the concept that there's possibly young people on the street that don't even want to be there or they're there too long, they feel stuck. And so he approached the director of the food bank, Carl DeLine at the time, who um, listened to an opportunity that the philanthropists offered to create a new idea, think out of the box, create an alternative to what we've been traditionally doing in our community to try and help young people exit the street culture. And so... um, I was early into that conversation because I had a we had a mutual friend who introduced me to the idea that was offered, and I had an interview with Carl, and um, he hired me after that interview, and so we spent the next six months at the food bank 
talking about what would be a new approach to helping young people get off the street. We had a really strong foundation um, in our own social context. Carl had been raised in poverty. I'd been raised in a, on a farm in Alberta and studied sociology and always really cued to um, juvenile delinquents, as they were called in those days. Um, and so over six months, we had basically a daily conversation about how we could imagine a thing that would work to help change cultures from poverty in the street to um, a participation in mainstream economy and community. That involved a lot of different things, and um, unless you study sociology, you probably don't think very much about your own life being culture-driven, but it is. And every time you get a new new job, you change cultures. Every time you get in-laws, you change cultures or learn them, that kind of stuff. That is the task of young people who want to get off the street. They not only have to recognize that they're stuck and want to leave, they also have to see possibility in being able to access being off the street. And so we talked to young people on the street, we talked to young people in school, we talked to um, people that worked at the food bank and community people and had a lot of conversations about how they would imagine that it would be, we could do something different than had been done before. Carl understood because he had lived it, how critical an aspect of um, life is legal cash when you don't have access to it. And young people on the street going there for their survival, that's one of the things that they deal with so a great deal. And so we originally established um, a few really different things. We thought we would have a place where young people were paid an incentive to participate. It started with food, and then we sort of, um, as a, an organized activity around that, and then it developed to be a space. We understood that there had to be no strings to allow young people time to trust a process that they weren't used to. And so we created a safe space. We created an opportunity for young people to use a business plan approach to planning the steps they wanted to take off the street, and then that incentive would be we'd be tied to an individual plan. That's the way we started. And so we learned that the business planning and the incentive also built trust in, in us, in safety and young people, um, learned to um, see community people in that context as not people that didn't respect them, but people that cared about who they were and that kind of stuff. So there's there's nuances to the sky about what goes on in the room in this process, but it's really a human process where young people begin to trust people who want to be supportive of their journey off the street. We still kind of are outliers in terms of our own community. Um, it took about 10 years for this city to accept that we gave incentives to young people. There was a, a huge... I was going to ask, yeah, just around the... Was it controversial at the time? Is it still a little bit controversial? Uh, what do you, what, how did you guys overcome or deal with um, giving cash to, to homeless youth to help them 
to, to incentivize their, it was, their engagement. It was outstandingly controversial when we started. Uh, nobody was um, willing to even think about it to as a consider, considered option. Um, one of the young men, probably two or three years into the process, told me his... His father was a business guy in the city, and he said his it was his stepfather, actually, which doesn't matter. Um, he said, my father said, I would rather take my lighter and burn a $20 bill than give it to you on the street. This young man had been on the street on his own, and his parents felt that he had to figure out how to get off the street on his own. Um, and they never did understand the role of... Role of that money in the process. They didn't understand safe money or legal money as a critical piece to giving you opportunity not to do something you don't want to do because you're in survival at all times, right? And another one of the young men um, made a comment once to somebody that we've told off, and he said, just think, if there's eight steps a month and it's $15 a step, it costs $120 a month to keep me out of jail because he felt in navigating the life of the street that's, that he would have had to do something illegal through the, through the months to get to be incentive, to get to make his life work. Yeah, when you think about return on investment for $120 a month, that's, uh, that's pretty substantial. So 10 years later, we had more people um, willing to donate to the process. There's, there's a lot of caution around it still. Um, we stereotypically um, identify young people on the street as bad people and not as young people who have no other options. And so that, that hasn't changed very much. We haven't, we haven't noticed significant change in that. People are more interested now that they've heard of more people using incentives, that incentives work, but it's still a very cautionary thing to give an incentive to a young person who's on the street. Um, and that's, we have to own that. That's, that's our gap, not theirs. They're trying their... Can we dig into the incentive idea a little bit and why it's become a cornerstone? Like what's, what's so important? Uh, what do incentives do for the young people when they, when they come here? Incentives bring people through the door because it's legal income. Incentives are not trusted at the beginning by young people they think there's going to be a catch there's going to be some strings attached to that they're they're always consistently surprised that there's a $15 on the table because you wrote a plan and then and then they learn more about that the incentive that they keep coming back for which is what we hope they will do with it we devised it as it's a, a way of scamming, and we devised it intentionally so that young people who knew how to scam, because that's one of the ways you'd survive on the street, could come here without, without changing any expectation to change anything. They could scam that system as well. And consistently in the first one to three months, young people who are getting that money for making a plan um, begin to think about there's nothing at stake here except I have an opportunity and I might as well uh, think about it like an opportunity instead of just an opportunity to make money. Um, in our first six months, in our first year, we did a pilot and one of the 18 people in the pilot, his name was Bill, 
he came in one morning, six months into his, his, his contract, and he said, I don't get it, he said. I thought I had the best scam going with the back door, which we were called in. And he said, I woke up this morning in my own apartment and a key, no furniture in my room, but I realized you guys scammed me. That, that was a direct quote. And we've enjoyed that story and telling that story. And it's a harmless story, and it's a, it's a powerful, hopeful story because um, the, the respect that they have to acknowledge that we've given them in terms of just trusting them with no strings is part of them beginning to believe in their credibility and their capability and all of those things. So the incentive becomes um, what an incentive is. It motivates you to keep going. When I, when I have my first conversation with young people on the first page where they read all the stuff about how this place works, the, we have a discussion about what they think an incentive is. And they're, they're very clear, most of them already, on I know what an incentive does. It, it makes you want to do something. And so that's how it works. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that's something that struck me when I got to know more about the doorway and in conversations with you guys is the, you know, the housing and the employment and the getting out of street culture into mainstream culture is really kind of a secondary goal to self-efficacy and agency and choice. And it seems that the incentive structure really lends itself to, like you say, that choice point one to three months in, I can choose to keep scamming here, or I can choose to take the opportunity to make some changes in my life. Is that a pretty common journey that people kind of, is there a, is there a point in time when you notice participants suddenly stepping into uh, making choices for themselves as opposed to the incentive or other people's expectations? Um, yes, I, w- I would say that they also announce it. I think that they talk about it once they realize that this is something that has value for them and they can maximize that here. Yes. Um, the, the really diligent um, approach we have to allowing people full autonomy, self-determination, is that for most of them, most of their lives, they've been doing what other people have told them to do. They they haven't had the freedom or opportunity to make choices, to learn how to think about things, to problem solve, that kind of stuff. And so we knew when we designed our process that we needed a, a process that was so clearly their own from beginning to end. We were here to um, be cheerleaders. We were here as uh, support, to believe in them. Um, and we were here as the the business that offered them an opportunity to, to uh, make some money while they planned. And the fact that every time they receive $15, they know that it's not government money, it's not United Way money, it's money from the grandmas and the parents and the professional people and the people who live in our city who give to this project. That's who's investing in them. And so it begins to build a larger trust for them back into a society that for most of the young people here has not delivered a very good plan for their for themselves. Right? Yeah, for sure. And I imagine that there's a you know, not just that piece, but the fact that they're earning it and it's not being given to them like they actually have to do something Absolutely. as opposed to getting a handout. You know, it's, it's you know, um, 
something they may not be used to. Caitlin, you're nodding your head, and I know that you have experience in in the in different places in the system. We'll call it of of homelessness and youth at risk. And so you've been at door, the doorway now for how long? Seven years now. I've been with the doorway. Okay, and what what brought you here, and what keeps you here? Mm. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, I had a bit of history in the youth sector. Um, and was really grateful, learned a lot in those settings. But I do think there kind of came a point where something was missing for me. Um, and so I was kind of doing the traditional job searching, <laughs> going through the youth survival guide, <laughs> looking at um, options for myself. And the doorway popped out. Um, and I was familiar with them because of the fire in uh, 2009. So they were on... Uh, X929 and so I'd heard someone speak then and jumped on their website um, and just the self-determination component uh, really spoke to me I think at that point I knew the terms person-centered and strength-based but I wasn't really feeling like anywhere was super utilizing them Um, and so met with the doorway they liked me, <laughs> which I was grateful for. And um, let's pause and let's talk a little bit about those those buzzwords: strengths-focused, client-centered. Some of these things that we see on the walls of programs or we see on their website, and may not actually be reflective through their practice. Um, when you got when you talk about client-centered, and this can be a question for for either uh, either of you, when you think client-centered, what What's the system doing wrong when it comes to client-centered? Or what's the shift that needs to happen that would drive us closer to being client-centered? We chose never to use the word client in our process because uh, client is a power-based word. And for all of the inequities in life that these young people have experienced, we felt it was really important that they would walk through the door understanding that they were persons and not a client and have any expectations that are related to client apply to them. They were young people who live in our city. We were adults in our city that were responding to them. And so we tried to remove all the jargon (laughs) that um, didn't represent um, what we really wanted to be, was just a community of people responding to them as people. And they come through our door, and I didn't mention this before, but they come through our door with no files, no no history. They walk through the door. That's the first day of the rest of their lives, as far as we're concerned. And they have a name, and they have a face, and they are that person for 24 months with us. There's no reference to their past unless they bring it in in terms of their planning and how they want to deal with it or things that they need to take care of that make their life go forward more smoothly and quickly. But the fact that they are people, we, in our systems, we have become so used to um, defining people by, the, by the, the database and what categories they're in, that they get lost in the categories and the labels that they're given with diagnosis and that kind of stuff. And so then um, they're dehumanized, and so they become data. And so when we do social planning, we plan about data, not about people. And we um, strongly believe that the thing that they need most 
is real people to believe in the real person and for them to start believing in themselves. And then that's exactly how it happened. And it started immediately. We thought if our pilot didn't work, we would just call it a day. And, and uh, when two, our first two years were done, when our funder said, okay, you guys, um, I'm going to withdraw some of this funding now. Um, we thought, well, if we don't get enough funding, we'll just stop. Um, but yeah, we understood by then young people saying, you can't stop. This is the best opportunity that I've ever had. And this is working for me to start believing in myself and taking my own life forward. If other people are managing your life or telling you what to do and you change to comply with other people, you still haven't really owned your own change. And so when the other people are out of the room, you aren't you aren't that you are who you still really are and so the doorway offers an open-handed opportunity for young people to understand themselves choose what they want to change and choose it from their own volition and that's why it works yeah and what you're describing from from my perspective is is personal power is actually enabling someone to operationalize their personal power to step into it and to make choices and to live with the consequences of those choices, which the system doesn't always do, right? Neither doesn't deliver the consequences and doesn't deliver the choice and yet has expectations for change to happen. And it can be pretty counterintuitive when you actually step back from it and, and look at it. Um, Caitlin, what do, you, what do you have on that topic of client-centered? Because even that distinction, that level of intention that you bring to the language to realize that client is in itself inherently embedded in a power dynamic, is there other language that you guys are careful of or that you watch for or that you teach community volunteers to be mindful of? I know you guys train community volunteers to come in and give a bit of that kind of mainstream culture kind of perspective or a chance for youth to interact with something other than street culture. What does that look like and what kind of language do you have to like um, remove from people's vocabulary or add? What are you working on? Always encouraging the community members uh, to to not tell people what to do um, and don't say the word no. <laughs> um, they no can definitely be a reflex word for a young person who's been in a lot of systems and services, um, and so. Even um, j just always saying, like, you can do that on Tuesday, uh, not you can't do that today, um, can get a huge, re a very different response from a person. Um, we language is super powerful. Uh, rather than saying, um, you can do this, uh, say, can we do blah, blah, blah. Um, which is you're on their team when you use we language and they start to feel that, um, especially if they haven't had a lot of people on their team. I think Marilyn mentioned it earlier that we, we teach them. I think a lot of people come here and they want to be coaches. Um, and they, they know what, what these young people need either. They've, they've been there, like they've, uh, um, been through hardship and uh, they've come out and succeeded or they've parented they know what to say um, but it is it's it's a very different um, field that we're playing on and, and Marilyn uh, nailed it and I tell the volunteers often like you're not you're not the coach you're the cheerleader uh, so put your clipboard down and bring your pom-poms to the table like um, and that's what they need they need people to say like you can do it that's a good idea um, and, and even if you don't think it is a good 
good idea. Like ask the right questions to help them think through that idea further and further. Uh, If they leave feeling like they can do it, they're going to attempt it and they'll come back to you. And then you can have further conversations with them. Uh, But if you just crush that plan, you've probably crushed your relationship with them and crushed the plan on top of it. (laughs) And I think that's that's hard or from my observations it can be hard for a helping professional or someone who cares really deeply to not jump to fixing to not want to make things better immediately to not kind of exercise their own power to help somebody change and so how do you how do you do that how do you wrestle with that or how do you get people to flip that switch because i know it's something we used to try and train staff on a lot and it was actually you know i stopped hiring people with too much education because they would have a very ingrained perspective that it's that mindset that is so powerful. So Marilyn, how do you, how did you guys intentionally go about, because 30 years later, you've been able to hang on to that mindset of, of really choice-based um, person-centered work. Um, well, the, well, the that? frame that we created, which I didn't say at the outset, the frame that we, we created was that this change is cross-cultural. And so we defined the street as a distinct culture. Mainstream in, in, in our city would be a distinct culture. And so once you start using the language of culture and people can recognize that this is my perspective and that's your perspective, there's no right or wrong. There's what works and what doesn't work, and that's true on the street as well. And so we learned that from Carl right up front, how important what works and what doesn't work is the language that you need to use. And it doesn't matter what I think you should do. I don't even know you. I don't know your life. And we say that early in the process. Um, We don't think anyone can sit down for the first time with you and have opinions about what you could do to succeed in your life. This is, you're the subject expert for your life. You get to decide everything that you plan, everything that you experience, the consequences of you learn from. When you, when you fail, you learn way more than when you succeed because when you fail, you have to think more about it. It's a, it's a growth process. And, and young people have just uh, inhaled that opportunity. The people that want to do the process the way it's intended, uh, it's like magic. They get sparkles in their eyes <laughs> knowing that, that they've done things that nobody had ever helped them understand they were capable of. And they've discovered it themselves. We didn't say, you're capable. We said, you can do it, which is different, right? Yeah, I think you know one of the, the approaches that we took in addictions treatment that was different was this kind of really strong emphasis on experiential learning and you can't have experiential learning if you don't have failure and if you don't have consequences for those failures and so we used to do it in the wilderness where it's like well if you don't bring your rain jacket because you chose not to pack it and it rains like very basic you're going to get wet and there's nothing i can do about it and you're gonna be cold as a result and therefore like that lesson is going to hit home a lot more than a staff harping on a kid to pack the rain jacket a dozen times and for that kid to finally comply with that staff and pack it and you know that doesn't shift anything for anybody except to reinforce that you need somebody to tell you what to do in your life and so i really i really resonate with with that piece that you guys have kind of developed right into the model and i think that that's probably one of the biggest missing pieces in social services and education right now is this kind of unintentional disempowering and and how we go about doing that and so i really like your perspective on removing the morality out of it and it's is it working is it not working for you right it seems critical or maybe like why don't you walk through a common journey so somebody walks in the front door and what happens 
and then two years later, what what's different? A, a really huge learning moment for me um, was a young guy um, who who pretty regularly participated for the full two years. Um, watching him uh, continuously come back to his plans, come back to his plans. And I remember this was early on in my time, and so I was still uh, naive. <laughs> and, you know, when someone gets a job, you think that's it. Like, it's done. Here we go. They got, they're going to get a house. It's, we, we did it. Um, and then they come back and, oh, um, there was discrimination at work and um, somebody wrote this on their locker and then blah, blah, blah. Um, no backing from people. They don't want to work there anymore. Um, or, or landlords uh, doing things. Um, but this young man, he just constantly came back to his process, came back to his process. And um, that was... Um, so I guess inspiring to watch and, and drives me now um, with the young people. But by the end of his time, um, he had, he had I think, an, an analogy uh, that he could lay out for me that was um, street is one island and mainstream culture is this other island. Um, and he used to live on the street island and he started rowing his boat over to mainstream and sometimes he gets off and he hangs out on mainstream. Um, but sometimes he rows back to street and now he's in this place where he doesn't really belong in either. And so he's most comfortable in the middle with his boat, with his boat tipped over his head. Um, and that's, that's why we're here, I think. And I think that's a little bit of what, um, is driving us now is is these young people's commitment to themselves can only take them so far um and there's these huge barriers in society that we're trying to figure out how we can break through um so they're not in the middle with their boat tipped over their head but somewhere where they're happy yeah why don't we talk about some of those barriers what like let's let's talk about the system because sometimes I go places and people blame the system and then I walk around looking for the system and I can't seem to find it. It's not this discreet thing. And so from your guys' perspective or what the participants are telling you about these barriers, what are they and what what are some steps that we can take to start to dismantle some of these? Employment is a huge barrier. Um, fortunately, I... I had a really positive conversation with a hotel company. I can say that, I think. Um, and they just recently looked at all of their job descriptions within their hotel um, and actually identified, okay, which of these do we actually need high school diploma um, as a job requirement? Do we actually need all of these skills and do we actually need a year of experience um, and what they figured out was, no, they don't. Um, and so they have now implemented a process where if you have a strong uh, kind of team lead on a shift who can really accelerate that training process, who's super compassionate, who is patient, like kind of has um, more so they have the job, the skill sets that are required, um, then you can train someone who doesn't have a high school diploma and you can see success with those things. So I think maybe businesses all around looking at um, 
do you actually need all of those requirements? Um, and with criminal records, um, can we be open to conversations with people? Uh, not just a hard no, but do, do you have a position in your business that isn't around money, that isn't around people that you could give someone a chance and they could prove to you? Because um, people really do need it right now. The job market is tough. Um, and landlords have a lot of power. Um, yeah, I think everyone is cautious of signing a rent report and things like that. Um, but even just if you are a landlord, um, you don't have to be rude about it if you don't want to sign the rent report because um, that really, it impacts a person for the next person they're going to go ask for that rent report from. Marilyn, what do you see as well, uh, as barriers at, at any level? Well, I, the there's something really simple related to um, employment that um, I didn't learn for years being here, but I had two people with the same kind of story. Um, one of them came in who had been maybe a week and a half into um, a new job. It was an inside um, inside the the business, I forget what it was, but she said um, she'd started her second week at her job, and she said, and I really learned that in the staff room or wherever people congregate before work, she said, nobody wants to hear anything about the weekend that you just spent, and it's a total cultural thing about what you talk about when you get to work, and that concept was, was profound to her. She had to learn how to be appropriate in saying good morning to people and all that stuff. They didn't want to hear stories of her weekend. That would have been one of the things that was this huge learning for her. And the second one was a learning for me, a young man who about four days into his job just was almost paralyzed about going to work. He said, I'm scared to go to work. He said, I don't know how to do small talk. He said, people come into the room and they have all these ways of communicating. And he said, I don't know how to do that. Two really, really simple things you'd never think are barriers for young people to be accepted. Um, we're just pretty happy to carry on who we are as people and and the sensitivity to other people. It isn't pity. It isn't pity. It isn't oh, you poor thing. It's about how to be inclusive to people that um, are new to your space. That kind of stuff. So it was. Um, a really critical piece of understanding for me that at that level that's where culture is and that's how we need to be relaxed and um, alert maybe is another word in paying attention to people that are new and um, the the um, a long time ago one of our senior volunteers said one day to me he said Marilyn young people um, mirror the society that has produced them. And I've never forgotten that. And it, it, um, it's true, the more, the more that you think about it. And the other piece of that is that if they mirror us, then what's going on for them is our responsibility. We're contributors to where they are today. It isn't that we stand aside and say, you just have to fix yourself and you'll be fine. We are responsible to be part of and that's what Caitlin was explaining. We're responsible to be part of nurturing them to be um, feel safe enough to come back into our world and give them the cues that they need to feel like they can fit and contribute. 
great, great points. And let's talk about that young people mirroring society. Um, let's kick off from there. What, what are young people telling us these days? And is it the same as 30 years ago? Have things shifted a little bit from your perspective? Are, you know, a we always hear about the kids these days, and that's probably been a, a conversation for a long time. But are have things shifted around for, for from your guys' perspective? Absolutely changed. And I think that the, the two most important pieces of your culture are young people aren't getting universally anymore, and that is meaning and purpose for their lives. We've got adults that are so distracted and busy and whatever that they haven't had um, the time, the ability, the whatever, um, or even to recognize that your kids need that from you. And so it feels to us in this space over the last five to ten years <clears throat> that there's more and more young people that are not as um, not as certain that life really has something for them, that we don't have um, a good employment market for young people without skills, we don't have a very good reputation in accepting young people. We kind of leave young people from the time they're 13 till they get a job as sort of in a limbo of their own, and they've, and they've connected socially with their peers. And that's not helpful if that's the only thing you have in your life to figure out how to be a contributing adult in a society. Years ago, I heard um, Wade... I'm going to forget the name, but I'll give it to you at the end. <laughs> um, a guy that worked for the National Geographic, and he traveled extensively to indigenous people in South America, and he um, recorded the things that he learned. And I heard him one time on CBC talking about being in a small indigenous tribe and recognizing that all the children in that, in that um, community were with the adults in their lives all day long. They learned the purpose of their life. They learned the meaning of the work that they could contribute to and help with. And so young people grew up in that society knowing their place in the whole and were able to continue the society. We don't have that in North America or even or the West. I don't know how far that extends, but we don't have that opportunity to nurture our kids into the being who they are in finding a fit in the world. And I and that's tragic from our point of view because even if we help young people to plan to get a job, to plan to get a place to live, then then what's next? And we have young people having babies who are so motivated to do the best they can for them and they're going to parenting classes and all that stuff. And they're trying to start a life that has more meaning than they felt that they had so far. And I don't know where that ends, but it's prof we, I think it's profoundly different than it used to be. Young people, when we started, got our generation more. There, 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 there still was work. There still was a point to working. Um, and the so is it a sense of hopelessness combined with being disempowered? Are those different for you, those two ideas? Because um, it sounds like that kind of meaning and purpose is that highest level kind of thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, thing that makes sense of the world and what I'm trying to do in it. And then empowerment is the, do I have the ability and can I can I set goals and, and follow through on them on a kind of day-to-day, day -to -day, week-to-week kind of basis? And so is there is there real 
issue because i'm always trying to drive down to like what's the root cause like how do we dig out the roots of these issues because working in addictions treatment for a long time it was symptoms after symptom after symptom and you know addiction for me is just a symptom of underlying distress and being dislocated from what's meaningful from being disconnected to other people and in that kind of context then addiction makes sense or substance use makes a ton of sense and so when you think about the roots of homelessness if if that's kind of the main driver of of the participants here is getting out of street culture back into mainstream what do you are the roots really societally driven and is it a loss of meaning and purpose is it something else is it what are some of these bigger bigger issues i think a lot of it is adults um who have unintentionally kind of failed young people along the way um, in in a variety of ways. And I, a lot of young people we know come from the child welfare system. Um, so that's um, can potentially be lines of poverty um, that a system intervened and tried to help with. And it's it's continued and it's continued and it's continued. I think that's when the power kicks in because you understand you've never had any power when you once you're connected to the system that that you have to comply and and cooperate and all of those things so and what we have in terms of structures in the systems are just um, people feel like they're just being held there I remember one young woman who said she was in a group home I think three years and she said being in a group home is like turning off your brain for three years so when she, between the ages of 13 and 15 um, this bright young woman um, didn't have a chance to think she had to figure out how to survive in that in that place um, she um, went through our process and I'm not saying our process was magic but she had he she had so much personal collateral that she ended up going to university and now she teaches in one but um but it's that concept that you're not a person then you're part of the data that they've hired people to address and they shouldn't hug you and they shouldn't those kinds of things all come into play in the policies of for for the reasons that are that are start out being really good but at the end of the day young people are not served well by them in terms of being human beings they're not yeah and one of the one of the things that i think about a lot or or talk with the system or the practitioners a lot is the the difference between an abuse of power and a misuse of power and that we can be misusing our power unintentionally and accidentally kind of over and over and over again uh, without necessarily knowing it and i think that that's from the perspective when I look at systems and when I look at child welfare or education or some of these bigger places where the needs of the system start to take over from the needs of the individual, this one size fits all. I mean, that drives us down that path of having to differentiate, you know, I need to, I only work with addictions, right? And so kids get, you know, sidelined into an addictions treatment program and addiction isn't the only thing. And it's not actually the main thing that, that drove them there, but that's the type of help that they get is a narrow sliver of who they are. And so I think one thing that, you know, really resonated with me is that you guys see whole people, they walk in off the street, literally, and you see them as a whole person, not as a narrow sliver, not as someone who's homeless or using substances. And I think that that, that need for these systems to categorize and label, um, to allocate resources, like the whole thing 
I don't know if we can fix it. What are your perspective on what the fixes are, right? Because is it something that we can continue to tweak in some of these systems or do we need to start over? Do we need to um, rethink how we're doing some of these big big pieces around kids in particular and how we're how we're raising them? That's not, not a small question. Um, yeah, I've had a number of conversations just um, with people who've, ended up working in the systems more as um, caseworkers. And yeah, this is, um, the system can be very devastating when you uh, start in university and you walk out with these high hopes um, of all that you've learned and all that you're going to apply. Um, and then, yeah, jump, jumping into it and then actually trying to implement it and kind of being smothered um, with huge caseloads um, is, is one thing I hear from uh, people I'm, I'm still in contact with and how can you develop a proper relationship with someone when you have over 100 on your caseload um, and really be looking at those kind of individual needs and in, in ensuring that you're present for the conversations that you have with them, getting back um, to them promptly. Um, even just, I think... The systems are set up to you qualify for something based off of saying everything that's wrong with you. And so automatically your relationship with that person is you had to come through the doors and just put put yourself down in order to be like, I need your service. Um, and I'm not sure we're, we're totally aware that those assessment tools um, do that for people, but it that's what one of the things that um, really struck me when I started at the doorway and I think has really kept me here is um, from going from using those tools that ask like everything that's wrong with you to going here where a young person thinks through what they want to do and then presents it to us. Um, when I go home at night, <laughs> my feelings are so different just because there's so much more hope and possibility in this space, even though they're, they have been the same young people sometimes. <laughs> That's so fascinating, right? It's the same young person and different response based on the context that we build around them. And so, you know, strengths focused is one of those things that's a buzzword that gets lots of airtime. And I would look at kids' files, they'd come out to, to the program and I'd go looking for the strengths in the file and it'd be on page 37. And it would be a little box and it would have like a likes hockey. And that would be the strength, right? And then you ask the kids, well, tell me more about hockey. Well, I had to put something. I don't actually like hockey. I'm like, oh, well, we did a really good job of identifying the things that you are good at and your competencies. And so I think that that, I mean, right there, I think there's probably, if the system did a better job of not being deficit focused yeah. and being a bit more focused on competencies and strengths, because there's competencies and strengths in everything, right? The fact that these kids are surviving. Mm-hmm their lives sometimes points to a, a huge amount of competency and and strength and so Marilyn what do you think about well, the system I have one uh, really interesting story and I, w- I will never forget this day the first thing that that happens in, at the doorway is that I get a first conversation to explain our process to them and it involves them um, writing some stuff on a paper about um, their own goals for what they want to accomplish while they're here. And one day a young woman just broke down and cried and she said, do you mean I can just think about my life and not trying to make the program work? Yeah, if that doesn't point to someone who has been disempowered, 
repeatedly in their life for that to be something that is so out of the ordinary that I think speaks volumes to something the system, a pretty tangible thing that the system can start doing right off the bat is giving a bit more ownership and control and truly being client. Like we're going to be client-centered. If we're still going to use that language, let's actually be client-centered. Let's shift it to person-centered or human-centered. It feels like our systems try to fit your life into their boxes. And what you said uh, a couple of minutes ago, um, they're do, they're do, we don't need boxes. I don't believe we need those boxes. We need to look somebody in the eye and say, as a human being, um, and proceed from there. And until you until they believe that you believe they're a human being, you've done a disservice to their humanity and to your own. And I and I know that people who are hired to do a job have to do it the way they're instructed, but. But it really is violent in terms of the way that people are not paid attention to. Well, the fact that all of us as workers in these systems, and I've been there myself, become dislocated from our own, what's meaningful for us, right? The, the burnout epidemic that we're experiencing in the education system, for sure, but also child welfare and these other places where your relationship is the vehicle for change. And if we're not connected and well with ourselves, how can we expect to have positive impacts on on the youth that were there to serve right and so it's it doesn't surprise me at all the the burnout rates and the long-term um, retention problems in this sector you know it's it, it's directly linked back to our practice because you know you've been doing this for 30 years caitlin you've been here for seven or eight i spent a dozen years in a place that really took seriously that notion of human-centered practice and it makes a huge difference in how not only the participants experience us but how we experience the participants and that whole that whole relationship there's no question there that was just a statement to uh, to reinforce so we're coming up on a almost an hour 50 minutes and so i won't keep you guys for too long but resources things that people should be thinking about practices that the average, so the most pr- people who are listening to this are probably practitioners or leaders in the nonprofit education space. And so some practical things, some books that you would recommend. I think it was Wade Davis that you might be. Yeah, he's got some great stuff. And so I'll, tr- I'll link and I'll put links in the show notes to anything that you guys mentioned. But is there is there something, is there a book, is there a um, an author, is there a person that you kind of have leaned on or you recommend to people? I see books all over the place here in the doorway, so I imagine there's no small list. Mine is not um, a book or an author, but just um, something I learned from Marilyn that I've carried with me um, in here is, um, I think there's a huge push right now in our sector for accepting people for who they are, um, and that's a step we really needed to take probably five, ten years ago. Um, But... Marilyn said to me one day, it's about accepting who they are, but believing in who they can be. And that takes that acceptance piece, just that extra mile that it really needs to go. Um, and has made it made a big change. I think when I started, I was so committed to accepting, accepting, don't make people feel like crap for who they are. And, um, but ultimately I, I don't think a lot can happen for a person unless you believe in them, which then causes them to believe in them. And I did just want to say um, strength-based 
connects so much to person-centered. Um, when you let someone take control of the process, you hear their strengths. And you had mentioned a young person who really didn't know any strengths. They can learn their strengths from us. And if you genuinely are connecting with them, um, they'll know that that compliment you just gave them, their personality, their character, uh, was was true. Um, and if they hear it from enough people, um, then it, it becomes the script rather than those assessments and those diagnoses and... Um, their critical incident reports. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. How about you, Marilyn? What, uh, well, there's what a book people? in sociology called The Making of Blind Men. And the, the, the singular lesson that I learned from that book when I read it in university years ago <clears throat> was that people become the way they're treated. And sociologically, people become the messages that they receive from the people in their lives. And whether they're intentional, whether they're omission or commission, as system people, we absolutely impact people every day in, in, in any way, um, one or the other. Um, and so we are responsible for, for creating people's, people's belief in themselves in some sense. <clears throat> and, and so freeing ourselves from from data, from labels, allows us to say you are a person, and then we watch them unfold in their in their planning and in in the conversations that we have. Um, a lot of people don't need um, any credentialed expertise to diagnose them. They need enough belief in themselves to recognize they have a strong spirit within them that. Can, they just need cues about how to fit the culture. That's easy because we've already figured it out. We got a job. <laughs> we know how to do the culture. And so it's that piece. It's when they can relax and not have to defend themselves against the world anymore that they begin to see, this is really not hard. I just have to figure it out. And that's because we have um, nurtured them to believe in who they are. Yeah, no, I love that. Um you know, we're never neutral. We're either improving or we're, you know, not improving. People are getting worse or they're getting better. I don't think that, and I think a lot of programs haven't necessarily taken that to heart, that everything you do is an intervention. Everything you do sends a message, right? And what is that message? What's the quality of that message? And what is it telling that person about themselves? And Caitlin, I love that. Can you repeat it again? Uh, accepting people for who they are, uh, but believing in who they can be. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to working with The Doorway as we uh, continue the journey over the next uh, little while. Thanks for listening in on today's episode, a conversation with Marilyn and Caitlin from The Doorway. And again, you can check out what they're up to and support them in lots of different ways at www.thedoorway.ca. And we're actually going to be checking in with them over the course of the next year or two as we embark on this journey that we're on together to do some evaluation and, and look at their outcomes and kind of measure the impact that they're having in the world, uh, particularly with the street-engaged youth of Calgary. A reminder to please subscribe to the show to give us a rating or a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It helps us to reach a wider audience. And I'm really looking forward to next week's episode. 
We're going to be talking with Paul Gorski about racial equity detours. His name came up on episode three with Kelly Wickham Hurst as someone to talk to about equity literacy and some of the detours and distractions that we might be taking with regards to equity and inclusion in some of these big systems. It was a great conversation, and I look forward to sharing it with you next week. In the meantime, have a wonderful week.